Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast with Kareem Farah, Tony Rose Deannon, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 48 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah and I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, someone that many of you have heard before or maybe been mentored by, watched a webinar that's hosted by or seen her in the Facebook group. It is the wonderful Tony Rose. Tony Rose has joined our team full time, so she's actually going to be co-hosting this podcast moving forward significantly more often with Zach and I. Tony Rose, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Kareem. I'm so excited to be here. We are excited to have you. Tony Rose, I think given that you are going to be on here a lot more, um, I think it makes sense for you to give a little bit more of a background on sort of your teaching career, your work with the Modern Classrooms Project, your role now. Um, And then we'll dig into this really, really exciting topic today, which I know both you and I are very passionate about, which is the idea of building equitable classrooms. So why don't you give a quick, quick history on your experience in the ed space? Yeah, thanks. Um, Hi, everyone. Again, my name is Tony Rose, she, her pronouns. So I'm really, really excited to be here. Um, I actually started teaching in 2010. So I was a teacher for 10 years before I became an instructional coach. So I've worked in Atlanta before, Baltimore City, DC, and now I'm currently in Washington. So I've had experiences throughout, you know, public schools, public charter schools and independent schools. um, And it's been so interesting seeing um, the differences and the similarities between those schools. But I started implementing Modern Classroom year 10 of of my career, which I was really bummed about because I wish I would have known about this model uh, for a longer period of time. But I was able to implement it in in the school year 2019-2020. So I've been an implementer and then I became a mentor. um, And now I'm joining full time as a program manager. So I'm really excited to spend all of my time with Modern Classroom now because it has definitely brought me joy throughout these past couple of years. Perfect. Thanks, Tony Rosen. Tony Rose is one of the first teachers that I coached through the model in the first English middle school classroom that I think I ever watched. She was one of the best implementers of the model, really just like beautiful implementation and unbelievable attention to detail in particular to students' needs, which I think speaks to this particular topic, which is the idea of building equitable classrooms. I think there's a lot that we could pack into a topic like this. um, And this is a certainly a topic that folks are talking about at scale at the moment. So I'm really excited to talk about this. I know it's something that Tony Rose has great expertise in and given her experience in a variety of educational environments, I think there's a lot to talk about here, especially as we think about variances in educational environments. So let's start with actually talking about what equity means to us. And I say this because education seems to be the industry of buzzwords. I don't think equity was a buzzword three years ago. It feels like a buzzword now, like differentiation, like personalization, like blended learning, where folks are suddenly just talking about it right and left, not really convinced that it's actually coming to life in school buildings and school districts and in classrooms all the time. 
So I think we need to really drill down what it means to create an equitable learning environment and start by defining the word equity. So Tony Rose, tell me how you think about the term equity. You know, I had a <laughs> I had a really hard time coming up with the definition. And so I read Elena Aguilar's Coaching for Equity book, and she provided a definition that just resonated with me and that, you know, it basically articulated everything that I wanted for this definition to cover, right? And so basically, she just says, educational equity means there's no predictability of success or failure that correlates with any social or cultural factor. A child's educational experiences or outcomes are not predictable because of their race, ethnicity, linguistic background, economic class, religion, gender, sexual orientation, physical and cognitive ability, or any other socio-political identity marker. So essentially what she's saying is that education equality means every child every day. And that this is attainable, especially with our model um, with blended learning, self-paced, and mastery-based grading. Yeah, I mean, I love that definition. It's significantly more intricate than the one that I use in my brain every single day, but I think speaks to it, which is just ultimately the idea of fair. Like we have to create a world where we're giving kids fair shot at being successful and not, you know, creating disadvantages for them for a variety of reasons that are not in their control. So for me, it was always this idea of fair. Like, am I creating a world for my students that's fair or am I actually creating a structure, a system, a model for teaching and learning where some kids just don't have as equal or equitable of an opportunity to succeed as others. And if that's the case, how do I kind of shrink those opportunities, get the, get rid of them and ensure that every kid has a fair shot at feeling successful? So I love that definition. Thanks for sharing that, Tony Rose. And how do you see that as being different from equality? Because I think there's a very important distinction that sometimes gets lost in translation. Yeah. With equality, it's basically everyone gets the same thing. Everyone is treated the same way. Now, in reality, not everybody is treated the same way, right? And so for it to be equitable, it, want, it means that we provide the supports and the resources so that every single person is able to succeed, however that may look like. And that's what makes something equitable as opposed to focusing on equality. Yeah, you know, I think this is a very interesting trap that folks fall into, particularly as it relates to expectations and pacing calendars and course structures and, you know, age-based promotion, where we think that because a student's in third grade, the equitable thing to do is to make sure that that third grader does exactly what the person sitting right next to them is doing every single minute of class. That is like the manifestation of quote-unquote equality and it's been taken too literally that's not very equitable though because if those two students have different needs we're ignoring their needs we're not giving the two students a fair shot at success we're just assuming that if we deliver the exact same learning experience to both of those kids then they are given an equitable opportunity to be successful and that's how i see the distinction and i think sometimes people will warp or weaponize the idea of equality as a way to say, look, we can't personalize instruction to kids' needs. We can't create flexible learning environments. We can't think innovatively about how we can support students differently and have them on different paces within the same class or in the same unit because the 
way to manifest equality is to actually have them do the exact same thing at the exact same time. And I think that's deeply destructive. And it was something that was certainly used in communicating feedback to me when I started to roll out the Modern Classroom Project approach, when it really wasn't being used all that much anywhere near me, was folks were saying, well, this is a problem because kids are at different spots and you're not holding them to high enough expectations. And that really frustrated me because it was a way to say that we couldn't give a responsive learning environment to students because we had to give every student the same thing. And that just didn't functionally make any sense. So that kind of comparison drives me actually totally nuts. And I love the fact that the new kind of trend in many ways is to actually focus on equitable classrooms. It allows us to put that focus at the forefront, which I think is going to be powerful and I think is going to create a lot better learning environments for students. You know, when we built the Modern Classrooms Project approach, I don't actually think we we thought about it through the lens of equity necessarily, as much as we thought about it through the lens of like, we're not doing right by kids, so let's do better. And then I think realized that we were really living and breathing equitable practices. But before we dig into what the Modern Classrooms Project approach does and kind of our beliefs at the organization, can we talk a little bit about why traditional systems don't actually create equitable learning environments? Like what to you about traditional old school teaching models and old school frameworks for school buildings and districts aren't actually living up to our goal of building an equitable educational environment for kids? Yeah. So, I mean, with traditional frameworks, you know, we expect equality and not necessarily equity. And so it's, you know, basically all students need to be on the same lesson, the same task, the same time. And so with the time constraints and all the standardized testing that we have to do, teachers feel like they have no other choice but to follow how it has been for so long. I mean, there was a book that I was reading where it basically stated if someone from the 1800s were to come to like present world, they'll be able to go to school and go through that educational system because it's very similar. And so it's just easy. And I know sometimes, too, we as teachers teach how we were taught. And so we continue that cycle because that's what we're comfortable with. That's what we know. Therefore, it's it's hard sometimes to to challenge ourselves to do a little bit more um, of an innovative way of teaching, especially with, you know, it being 2021 now, there's a lot of technology, there's a lot of like soft skills that we weren't able to um, use prior. Uh, it's really important now that we start innovating because something that I've learned with traditional teaching is that there's a lot of passive learning, right? So I'm in front of the class, I'm teaching for about 20 minutes and just talking at students. And yes, yeah, sometimes I'll pause and ask check for understanding questions. And that's probably just like three or four students that I just ask those questions as opposed to being able to see where each student, um, each student's understanding lays, right? And so with traditional, the traditional framework, it was just essentially, I was expecting my students to be on the same page as I am and hoping to like just hoping that they're able to catch up or just understand how I'm teaching at that one time. Because again, with the time constraints, right? Like I'm teaching theme today or this week and next week, if you don't have it by then, like, sorry, but we got to keep moving forward. And so essentially the students feel left behind, they feel lost, they feel confused, they're frustrated because they're not they're not there yet. They need a little bit more time to process all of the learning. And I think especially now when we're thinking about um, with learning and teaching, right, we, we want to provide the space for students to be able to process what they're learning. And it's not just like go, 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 and trying to fill in every single minute of the class time where students don't have the opportunity to take a step back and reflect and process what they just learned so that they can 
can have a deeper understanding of what we just talked about. Um, and so throughout like my nine years of teaching prior to Modern Classroom, you know, I was teaching students who were learning how to speak English. I was teaching students with IEPs and 504s. I had a wide variety of students' um, capabilities and abilities and strengths and all of that. And so it was, I cringe to think back that I would just stand in front of the classroom and have a lecture and hoping that everyone just gets what I'm saying for that one time. And if anything, like if I'm being completely honest, like if a student were to be absent, right, then I would be a little bit annoyed that I'd have to like go back and like reteach that student, right? And be like, oh my gosh, like I can't be doing like this new lesson and then also teaching this old lesson to students who missed it. And so it was causing a lot of frustrations for me. It was causing a lot of just like frustrations for my students. And so when I found out about Modern Classroom, I was like, oh, now I can clone myself. I could literally be in so many places and students are hearing the lesson um, and watching the lesson over and over again as much as they need, as often as they need. And even if they were to be absent or if they were out or, you know, doing what they have to do because life happens, it's okay. They'll be able to come back in and just continue to work on what they're working on. Um, and so, you know, with the traditional framework, it was so comfortable for me and so easy. I didn't even plan anything out, Kareem. I know like there are a lot of teachers out here who have been doing it for years where they're just like, oh, lesson plans? Like that's not a thing. I just know what I'm teaching. Um, and I was one of those teachers where I just didn't think to plan really like detailed lesson plans because I already knew what I was going to teach. And and it was just comfortable. And so in Modern Classroom, it really pushed me to again, take a step back and be like, no, you actually have to plan like detailed lesson plans so you know what the students' misconceptions are. You know where they're going to, you know, struggle with what is going to be the most challenging. And then also I had the time and the space to be able to do the assignments that I was also giving my students because it just opened up so much more time for me. And so I was really, really good at establishing relationships with students, even like from day one when I first started teaching. But I couldn't tell you what each student's skills were, like if what they were really good at and what they weren't, what they were struggling with. But I could tell you about their lives and I could tell you, like, I could talk to them about whatever else. It's just that I didn't know their academic abilities. But then with Modern Classroom, it just like shifted that for me, right? So it's like, I know my students as a human being and I know what skills and content that they really like shine, like they they celebrate, they love, they embrace. And also the ones that they're like, oh, I'm hesitant. Like, I don't know about this and need more time to process. And so I think again, like with the traditional frameworks, it's just not equitable because Students are expected to be on the same page, expected to learn at the same pace, expected to just do it at the same time. I'm really excited to have been introduced to Modern Classroom about this. I mean, even with like COVID happening, right? I mean, I noticed a good amount of teachers um, still talking to students through Zoom. And, you know, it's already really difficult engaging students online. And then to like talk to them and have this lecture of like 15 to 20 minutes, even like up to 30 minutes. I don't really know if that's like the best use of time, especially since time is so sacred with the students, especially if they're online. Right. Totally. Totally. I mean, what it comes down to, to me is just so much same 
like everything about teaching and learning and traditional frameworks are just a replication of the same thing over and over again. And even just the basic structure of what a traditional classroom in our minds is, like every kid in the same desk, looking at the same direction, listening to the same information, taught at the exact same pace, doing the exact same worksheet. Like when we think about the idea of equity, that is the antithesis of equity. The notion that everyone is doing everything in the same exact way. And the easiest ways to to think about it, like you said, are things like attendance, right? Like the notion that a kid who can't make it to class is just fundamentally at a disadvantage is one of the simplest ways to identify an inequitable learning environment. If you can make it to class for an extenuating circumstance, and that just fundamentally means you will not access as rich of a learning experience, you're not running an equitable learning environment. That's just a reality. And there's some things we can control about that, and there's some things we can't. But at the very least, we should be able to provide that student with just as rich of a learning experience if they're committed to accessing it. And that's part of what, obviously, we try to create at the Modern Classrooms Project. You know, the other thing that I hear in what you're saying, which I think is so, so important, is the traditional framework is really built around the premise that regardless of your needs as a student, we're just going to teach you in virtually the exact same way. And that doesn't mean you can't get to know kids like you said. In a traditional classroom, I was the same way. When I first taught traditionally, I had great relationships with kids. But I didn't know anything about their ability level. I just knew which kids had A's, B's, C's, D's, and F's. And then that like kind of put them in a bucket of successful and unsuccessful. But I didn't actually know like what was driving their lack of success and oftentimes made really bad assumptions about that, like they're unmotivated or they don't care. And an equitable learning environment says our goal as educators is actually to just gather more and more information about what students' needs are academically and socially and emotionally so that we can then address them. And the only way you can really address them is through small group and individualized instruction. So you have to maximize that sort of one-on-one and small group time with kids if you really want to build an equitable learning environment. Because if you just default to that kind of mass delivery of information, you're never actually taking into account kids' unique needs. And that's really, really destructive. So I love the way you put it. I think it's so, so true. And I think that kind of idea that you can still build great relationships in non-equitable learning environments is really fascinating um, and, and a dangerous way to assume that traditional frameworks actually are working. So can we dig in a little bit on the model and just like, what about the model addresses this? Because one of the things I want to say transparently to like anyone listening is the Modern Classrooms Project helps build more equitable classrooms. But there are plenty of things in our education system that are not equitable, regardless of whether or not you're going to use the Modern Classrooms approach. That's just the reality, right? Like we could spend all day talking about the fact that just the fundamental notion that kids are promoted based off age is not an equitable approach. The fundamental notion that every kid still has to go to the same amount of blocks of time, where every kid has to learn the same amount of English and the same amount of math and the same amount of science and the same amount of arts, like all those ideas theoretically could be deconstructed and we could challenge whether they're equitable. We don't really have control over that. That's just the reality of it. But I think we do work to build more equitable classrooms given the constraints in front of most educators. So in your opinion, like what elements of the model speak to you the most about that shift? 
Oh my gosh. I, I mean, okay. So all three pillars that we've talked about, right? So we have the, the blended learning aspect of it. And so I'm able to, um, record the video, my instructional, my instructional video and, and give that to students so that they can access it anywhere. So I had a student who was, uh, who went to a dentist appointment and missed class. And so they were able to access the information, even though they weren't in class, right? And, and, my students who are um, learning English, they, you know, they would just be like, Ms. D, I love this. I can repeat you or rewind the video, stop, pause it, you know, take notes, however it may look like for them. And they were really able to just dive deeper into the content and not feel rushed, especially with like uh, students who are learning English, right? It's like they take probably a lot of what double the time to process the information. And so it's really interesting to hear. And I actually love hearing my students just be able to say, oh, I get it now, you know, or wait, Missy, I have to rewind this because I didn't get it the first time. Or, you know, oh, let me just stop and like write some notes down so that I can remember uh, what this word means or even just pause. I don't know what this word means. So let me go look it up real quick. So it's no longer interrupting the flow of the lesson, right? If we were doing live lessons, the student who would raise their hand and be like, hey, I don't know what this word means. What, what does that mean? They're able to do that in their own space with their own computer. So they're no, they don't feel, you know, any type of way embarrassed about not knowing something. And they really get to own that learning. Um, and another thing that I really love about the blended learning part too is the fact that like these videos are also accessible for families. And so when I always talk to families, you know, I'm like, Hey, there's no gray area anymore. You know, your child can't say like, I don't know how this was taught. Well, how about we watch what Ms. D said in that instructional video and we can learn together so that we can then try and understand or transfer those skills to the tasks that you're completing, right? And so it's just really, it's, it feels nice to give my students all the opportunities to learn however they want to learn um, and to be able to access that content. So even if we were, you know, if we covered theme like last month, right, and then we touch base again the following month, you know, it's just really nice to be like, okay, if you've forgotten what theme was about, here's the video. So I no longer have to repeat myself and the students all know how to access the resources and all the information that they have so that, again, they can own that learning. And then as far as the self-paced learning uh, is concerned, I just, again, my students who are a little bit more advanced, they, you know, they kind of go through the lessons. And I always remind my students, you know, if you already know the content, that's great. This is a great way for you to review it. Um, and then also, if you could teach another Peer, then that really shows you have a deeper understanding of what we're doing. And sometimes students learn from each other. And so I'm not the gatekeeper uh, of the knowledge anymore, right? Like it creates that community, that collaboration in the classroom. And so students are more prone, I guess, and they, they, they ask for help from each other. And so it's not just on me all the time. And then, of course, you know, just if a student gets behind, it's not, uh, let's make fun of the student for getting behind, but it's more like, hey, what can we do to better support you? We see that you're in lesson, you're on lesson two or lesson four. Is there anything that we can do to make sure that you're not, you know, that you're getting everything that you need to get? Um, and so, you know, 
students are able to work together with their friends. If their friends are um, on pace or a ahead of pace. Um, it just really creates that like ownership and um, of their learning. And so students, students absolutely love that. And the self-paced, they don't feel rushed. And they also know that if they are finished with something, they could do their should do and their aspire to do assignments, or they could just take a brain break because, you know, it's okay. Like go take a brain break if you need to take a brain break. And even if you're not done with the content, if you really need a two, three, five minute brain break, like go take that brain break and then come right back so that you can be fresh and ready to start learning. And then, you know, another thing too, I'm with the instructional videos, one thing that I absolutely love about it is that I'm able to really sit down with small groups and individual students and have conversations about what they're learning and how they're doing. So my students, when they first come into my classroom, they fill out this the social emotional learning do now. And it's essentially just asking, hey, how are you doing? What are your plans for today? Um, what do you want to accomplish? And then also, what's bringing you joy, right? So it's really important to always talk about what's bringing you joy or like share something um, that makes you happy or share something that's happened to you lately. And it kind of just, you know, as a teacher, it allows me or it tells me really who to check in with uh, when they first walk in the room. So because we all know that if a student is not feeling well, if something's happening, they're not going to be able to focus on the content that they're learning. So it's really good for me to be able to sit um, and have conversations with students. And then as, as far as mastery based grading, this is where I think it's, you know, this is really interesting for me because, you know, teachers talk about like grading, like there's a lot of tension with with grading, right? How people grade. And with this model specifically, it's like, we're not looking at effort. We're not looking at participation. We're not looking at behavior. It's literally just looking at the skills and the concept, um, the content that we are teaching students and to really see, hey, do they need to revise this? Um, are they almost there, but not quite yet? Um, and then also like, oh, you got this. So continue like moving forward or continue to help people, whatever that may be. And so grading becomes more focused rather on feedback than really just grading, right? So we kind of know what students, I know as an English teacher, I mean, I have to be completely honest, whenever we had essays, those essays would sit on my desk for like two to three weeks because I just didn't have time to grade them and to give feedback. So by the time that I, you know, provided that feedback to students, you know, they were just like, Ms. D, I, this is, what is this? And they don't, do anything with it. They don't revise it because it's revised on your own time. When with this model, revision time is already in that time, right? So it's live feedback. I, I chunk the essay. I break it down so that students are turning in uh, pieces of the essay so that by the end of the, the unit, they have created this huge essay, this long essay, this beautiful essay. And I already know what people or what my students have already written. And so I've just been able to embrace that and love it. Um, and also the fact that like it not only holds students accountable um, with the self-pacing and the pacing tracker, which again, like the pacing tracker is a way for students to track where they are. Um, it's also holding me accountable as a teacher, right? Like if my students are on point, I also have to be on point with my feedback for them so that they're not just waiting on me. I love it. One one thing that comes to mind to me when I think about what you're saying, because it's like such a detailed analysis of, of all the different elements, is 
the easiest way I think to stress test whether you're running an equitable learning environment is to ask yourself whether the students with extenuating circumstances are still able to be successful, right? Because everything you described is in many ways designed to say, hey, my students with language barriers, like, are you still able to feel successful? My students experiencing trauma, are you still able to feel successful? My students who can't make it to class consistently, are you still able to feel successful? Right. And everything you're describing speaks to those groups of students when they are facing challenges. They walk into a traditional classroom and they're immediately working at a disadvantage. And when they walk to a modern classroom, they know that they have a fair shot at success. Now, of course, we are educators in a traditional system, so it still means we have to give common assessments and the kids have to kind of travel through a scope and sequence in a given year. But we're creating a higher likelihood that those students have an on-ramp to success than your more traditional settings. And I want to double down on one piece that you talked about because I think this is a hidden element. You talked about the grading practices. I mean, equitable grading practices, I would just generally say, are pretty infrequent. And one of the reasons why I think they're pretty infrequent is the amount of variability and just like teacher discretion goes into grading when you don't run a mastery-based grading classroom or a competency-based or a standards-based. You know, when you start to just like use things like completion and effort, those are extremely hard to drill down. So when you give a kid a six out of 10, because you like kind of think they tried hard, you just like baked in a lot of assumptions about why that kid deserved a six out of 10 that I'm not sure is rooted in any facts or data. And that gets really dangerous because now your opinion is like deeply involved in the evaluation of students. And I always found that really destructive because you end up leaving a year and you look at your grade book and A, you're not really sure why kids got the grades that they did. But then B, if someone really dissected and asked you, like, why did that kid get a C? Your evidence is oftentimes, I mean, mine certainly was not very strong. And that's dangerous because what happens if my own preconceived notions or prejudice drove me to give a student a C because I gave them lower effort scores or lower completion grades than they deserved, when really we should be evaluating student progress on actual student work against a rubric and against a set of skills. So what I loved about rolling out the model is I was engaging in equitable grading practices because it was honest and rooted in actual data. So when a kid got a C, it's because they mastered seven skills, not because I came up with some random mixture of completion and effort that had a lot of variability and that another person sitting in my exact same seat maybe would have given that kid a B and another person would have given them an F. Like that dynamic's really dangerous and I think destructive. And it oftentimes leads to a lot of conflict between families, kids, and teachers. You get a lot of arguments there as well. So I think it's pretty dangerous. And, and the other thing about the grading piece is it's not particularly equitable to just stop a kid from being able to actually get a full grasp of a skill. Like if I'm a student trying to learn how to add fractions and I'm like hustling to get there and I'm part of the way there, but then everyone just says, sorry, you got to stop. Well, we just did not give that kid a fair chance at mastering a skill. We cut them short. We told them they weren't good enough and didn't do it in a fast enough time. And then we said, go learn the next skill that by the way, is probably a little harder and relies on the previous skill. Like that's the antithesis again of equity. So I think the grading piece is a huge one. And people talk a lot about equitable grading practices, but putting it into action is a big deal. 
And I think it matters a lot because, you know, especially the older the kids get, like their grades have such a big impact on their lives that if we're not leveraging true equitable grading practices, we're really putting their futures at risk, which I think is super problematic. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, just checking your biases all the time as well, right? Like try not to make assumptions about who's capable of doing something. I know that I've made mistakes of like, oh, this student has provided great work throughout the school year. So I'm just not going to read through and I'm just going to give them an A. So it does happen to the best of us. Um, and so it's really good for us to just check our biases, check our assumptions. Um, and also, you know, if you have, I know that Canvas, the LMS Canvas does this where you can actually um, hide the student's name so you don't know who you're grading. I love that. Which I absolutely love. I don't know if any other LMS does that, but I know Canvas does it and I am all for it. Yeah, no, I think that's super cool. I mean, the variability in grading and the problems there are really dangerous. I mean, then you extend it out to like, you know, the discussion that kids have every year when they are, especially in big schools where they're like, oh, I got this teacher and that teacher's easy and this teacher's hard. Like, what does that say about just creating equitable learning environments, right? Like you roll the dice on whether or not you get a quote unquote easy teacher or hard teacher. That just like speaks to the amount of variability there is in the learning process, which I don't think is actually very equitable at all. So yeah, it's, it's a very interesting topic. And, and I think we can even continue to work on how we actually speak to that a little bit more because I think there's more we can do to make our grading practices even more equitable. We also grade for compliance sometimes, right? So students know like, oh, just sit there, like don't cause too much trouble or like don't do anything and you'll be able to pass the class. Um, and so I think we want to definitely move away from um, grading for compliance as well. Yeah, no, I mean, one of, one of my favorite things about the way that Rob ran his modern classroom and Rob is the Modern Classroom Project co-founder is when kids had to do their mastery checks, they actually had multiple avenues to demonstrate their mastery, which I thought was super cool. It's like the antithesis of compliance. They could either write a response to a prompt. They could give a presentation. They could do it in groups or individually. Now, this wasn't the case for every single mastery check, but I think it points to exactly what you said, Tony Rose, which is that when we run kind of compliance-based assessments and structures, it goes back to this idea of same, 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 and that's not particularly equitable. So I think that's a really creative way as well to think differently about creating an equitable classroom. Now, one of the things you mentioned kind of speaks to you about the model is self-reflection and self-awareness. Can you speak a little bit more about why you think that's important when you run an equitable classroom? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, so for self-reflection for me, I journal every single day, actually, just so that I could write down all of my thoughts and what went well and what I could have done better. And so with this model in particular, you know, we've been using the traditional approach for so long. And so when you start using the modern classroom model, it's really a different way of teaching, right? And so you have to be mindful of your thoughts, like be, be aware, like what are your values and what are your beliefs and how are they showing up in the classroom? And then when you want to start implementing modern classroom, you have to try and figure out, okay, this is blended learning. So that means I'm no longer going to be in front of the classroom. What does that look like? How does that feel to me? What does that look like to me? What does that sound like? Right. And so 
just being mindful of your thought process of why you do the things that you do, especially as a teacher, is really important so that you can gain a better understanding of who you are as an individual. And then maybe check yourself whenever you need to check yourself, right? And so sometimes, you know, people will have the energy to call you in to have that conversation, or even your students will say like, hey, Ms. D, this didn't feel good, or that wasn't fair, this, you know, whatever feedback that people give you, I I kind of have to take a step back and really reflect, okay, what happened in that situation for people to feel that way, for my students to feel that way? And so once I'm able to reflect, then I can start making next steps, right? Actionable next steps so that I can um, work on whatever I need to work on. And so as far as like self-awareness is concerned, you know, I know Kareem and I, you and I talk about self-correction all the time, right? And um, this is such an ongoing journey. We can't get it right all the time. There is definitely no like right way to do this because we are still learning. I mean, there's definitely a wrong way to do it, but not a right way of doing it because it's just something that we continue to learn. And then we also have to unlearn. So thinking back on like, okay, I'm feeling this way because this thing happened. Why am I feeling that way? And so when you become self-aware and you say like, oh, okay, I'm getting angry. Why am I getting angry? What, you know, what are the feelings and the thoughts that are coming up right now and why is that happening? And I think that's just really, really important, especially when you start implementing this model. Because at this point, um, Kareem, I remember when you came in and observed my class, you basically just told me, hey, relinquish control, like let go, let go of the control. And I was a control freak, you know, and I wanted to control everything. And, and that was probably the best piece of advice was to, to just let go. Your students are going to be able to do whatever it is that you throw at them and maybe teach you, not maybe, will definitely teach you a lot more than you anticipate from learning, uh, learning from them, right? So just the self-reflection piece, that's a lot of work itself. Um, and then also just being aware, oh, I made a mistake, so let me fix that. Oh, I, that's not what I meant. Let me fix that. So it's a lot of just like being able to reflect and be aware of what you're saying, what you're thinking, what you're doing. Um, especially when you start implementing this model. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. I think being reflective and being self-aware is such a powerful skill as the, from the educator perspective, by the way, Tony Rose is amazing at this. Um, she is extremely receptive to feedback and just like really good at iterating probably because she journals every day, which is not something I do and maybe I should start. Um, but one of the things I also want to connect this to is how important it is to get students to do this because it allows students to advocate for their needs better. And I think a lot of times when we talk about equitable classrooms, we speak from the perspective of the educator. What we're trying to do is build responsive classrooms, build strong relationships, you know, pivot and personalize to kids' needs, engage in small group individualized instruction. That is much easier when kids are able to actually ask for what they need. But for them to be able to do that, they have to engage in a reflection, right? A student needs to be able to kind of pause, think about whether or not they felt successful on a particular lesson, assess why they maybe didn't feel successful, and then advocate. And this is especially the case for students, again, who have extenuating circumstances, right? They can't make it to class for circumstances at home. Maybe a language barrier is making it difficult for them to access certain elements of the content or the way that the content's being taught. 
maybe they have special needs or a 504 plan and an IP, and they need to be able to advocate for those needs in your classroom, but also when they leave and they go on to maybe a four-year or two-year university or the workplace. I think it's so, so important that you instill in students the art of self-reflection, self-awareness, so that they become advocates for themselves, so that they can make it easier for others to create equitable environments for them. And I think that's so important. And I loved when kids did this, by the way, when they were able to reflect and pause, and then we could look at a reflection that they did together and then dissect like, oh, so you need this for me more? Fabulous. Like, I'll try to fit this into the way I run the class. So you feel more supported. So I love the idea of self-reflection, self-awareness, and it's tied both on the educator and the student. I think it's critical. Yeah. And, you know, something too, it's like, okay, we have these reflection tools for our students. We also as educators need to take the time to reflect on how the unit went. Um, I know my colleague and I, Emily, we always reflected on how the unit, because this was the first time we were implementing it in a middle school English um, classroom. So we really had to reflect on, hey, what were the best practices? And then what were some of the practices that we're like, we're never going to do again? Um, so definitely have that make time for reflection. So the students are reflecting. And they're providing you with feedback and then do something with that feedback so they know that you're actively listening and engaging in what they have to say. I love it. I love it. I want to talk about one more thing and then I want you to be able to give, especially since this is your episode back to being a co-host and you're going to be on here a bunch. I want to leave some time for you to kind of give educators some advice if they're coming in contact with the model. But before we jump to that, you know, one question we often get is this idea of tech inequities. Tony Rose, can you kind of articulate what the challenge is here? And then you and I can both kind of share some ideas about how modern classrooms thinks about this and can support. Yeah, most definitely. We talked about, you know, there's been a couple of mentees and teachers who say, hey, I don't have Chromebooks. Uh, my students aren't one to one. We don't have the money or the funding to have technology in our classroom. Um, and so I've been fortunate enough to have one on one in my in my uh, schools that I've worked at. However, we did start, you know, brainstorming. And I know I was talking to Kareem about this is how does this work initially if we don't have technology? And so a couple of the mentees have come up with like, hey, have stations, right, where you have um, one station would just if you have a cart or even like four or five laptops, four or five devices, students can be in that station um, doing the instructional videos. And then the other stations could be something else that's meaningful and intentional with the lesson that you're doing. Um, another thing that came up was allowing students to use their personal devices. And again, this depends on your school, right? Um, and really utilizing the QR codes. I mean, with COVID, QR codes are everywhere everywhere. Um, and so with the, with the QR codes, giving them uh, access to the resources that they need for the class. And then I know, Kareem, you and I talked about how your class could literally just be 5% tech and then 95% on paper. There's still a lot of teachers who are doing and implementing this model using paper. Totally. You know, so first of all, the whole idea of tech access and equity is a big one. And, you know, there's only so much folks can do about it. And I just want to say, like, on the record, that I think it's a massive equity issue if kids don't have access to technology in schools in 2021. And I am a, a proud advocate of ensuring that we get closer and closer to one-to-one -one nationwide. And I was proud, actually, during the pandemic of how much money was invested into instructional technology across the country. So I, I think it's an equity issue. If you're teaching an environment where tech is, is hard to access or, and, and Wi-Fi and broadband is hard to access, 
Like I, I truly am sympathetic of that and understand that that's a true equity issue and we can only play a small part in that. And I actually kind of have some experience with this because when we first rolled out the model, we were far from a one-to-one school. In fact, I was teaching at a school that had about a cart per floor, maybe two, which meant, you know, for 12 teachers, there was one to two carts to share and a total of 30 to 60 devices to share. Now, I like strongly advocated for the fact that my instructional model was a way to leverage technology effectively and that I should be housing the cart in my room. So I had the laptops most of the time. But even when I didn't, the next phase was really starting to leverage sort of your donor campaigns and donors choose to start getting devices. That's not ideal. It's not fair. Um, And I will publicly say that. But there are avenues to do that. So I encourage folks, especially through kind of Chromebooks, where you can really get devices for a significantly lower cost than most other devices. That's a powerful way to start getting devices in. Same thing with hotspots um, to get internet in. But what Tony Rose said as well is that, you know, you don't need a device per student. We often say one device for every two students is plenty. You can get splitters, which are the ways that you can kind of get two kids to watch the same video with two sets of headphones. I mean, there's splitters for two headphones or splitters for three headphones. I've seen some that are like a whole circle around. There's like eight headphones you could plug in. I don't know how productive it'd be for eight kids to watch one computer screen. Obviously, you can have kids watching things on other devices. And then also, you know, at its core, the reason we blend instruction is to get rid of lectures, live lectures. You don't always have to build an instructional video to get rid of a live lecture. So we've seen educators get really creative about replacing live lectures with other structures in class, whether it's a station model, whether it's, you know, providing writing prompts, whether it's providing kind of things that kids can read or some sort of physical thing that they can engage with. It's certainly more challenging. I never hide behind that reality. And I think we should all be working towards building greater access to technology. But those are just some ways to consider that and also speaks to what I think I said earlier in this discussion, which is that you know, what we do is create classroom environments that we believe are more equitable than your traditional settings, but there's still just a lot of work to be done in this space in a broad variety of ways. And access to technology at its core is one of them. Oh, yeah. And the headphone splitters are such a hit. Like my students absolutely love the headphone splitters and being able to watch videos with their peers. They do love that. They absolutely love that. I had kids who would only watch videos with their peers, which I had to talk them off sometimes. Um, (laughs) All right. So to close this out, Tony Rose, give the educators out there one piece of advice. If there's one thing you could say, they're about to come in contact with the model. Maybe they just learned it and are prepping to roll it out in this upcoming school year. Maybe they're a little nervous, experiencing some self-doubt, wondering if they can do it wondering if it's going to work for their kids. What's one piece of advice you would give those educators? I think for me, two things really, right? So I said one. No, I'm kidding. Keep I know. I know. Um, reflect on your values and beliefs and biases. And I've said this already, right? Really analyze and critique your way of teaching and learning and where you are right now. And then the second one is give yourself grace. Uh, just like what Kareem said, right? This is such an innovative way of teaching. And it is going to be challenging because innovation is hard. Uh, but definitely give yourself grace. So try it and give yourself grace if it's something that didn't work well or you could have made better just 
do better the next day, right? And so definitely give yourself grace as you start implementing this model because it is a such a different way of teaching and learning. And so the students are getting used to it. You're getting used to it. And it's okay to make mistakes. Continue to give yourself grace and continue to work on how to implement this model specifically for your classroom. And you're going to crush it. It's going to be fun. I love that last piece of advice. Give yourself grace. I mean, I wish, and I still think I need to do this somehow. I wish people could see the first instructional video I ever made because it was really something not to be watched. (laughs) So if you think that everyone's out there just producing this like gorgeous content and running these beautifully smooth modern classrooms where every kid is magically motivated in exactly the same way and crushing through content and all that kind of stuff, that's nonsense. It's hard. It's challenging. You're going to run into roadblocks. And you're going to make plenty of mistakes and give yourself grace. And as long as you feel like you're improving and you're creating a better learning environment than what you had created the day before or the year before, then you're moving in the right direction. So that's a great piece of advice, Tony Rose. Tony Rose, thanks for jumping on today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Kareem. And, and I'm really excited to continue this with you too. Absolutely. Yeah, so this is certainly not going to be the last time you hear from Tony Rose. She'll be in here quite often chatting with us. Um, and next week is actually going to be our one-year anniversary, which is really, really exciting. We've been doing the podcast for almost one year now, which is thrilling. It's actually hard to imagine. It feels like it's flown by. So as always, you can access our content at www.modernclassrooms.org, free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. For all the teachers out there who are starting school soon, well, good luck. Um, (laughs) Congrats on being able to go back, hopefully, into classrooms and being able to work with students. Um, We're excited as an organization to start watching classrooms and seeing educators in action and seeing teachers with students back in the buildings. So good luck. Um, We know it can be a stressful time, but an exciting time as well. And we will be back at it next week. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. Podcast.